Hey guys, how you doing tonight? Good, good. Um, so, how many of you guys have seen the film Dead Poet Society? Show of hands. Yes, I figured at the church like this, odds are good, it'll be a little higher than usual. Um, if you haven't, uh, I recommend changing that as soon as humanly possible. Amazing, amazing film. Um, if you have, then this quote by Robin Williams' character should sound pretty familiar to you. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. In many ways, this is the tension that the whole film is about, figuring out what the point is. The boys in the boarding school in this movie are told two conflicting messages. One, you are in this school so that you can achieve something that matters, like high-impact, white-collar jobs that will provide for you and your family. Two, you're in this school so you can achieve something that matters, which is transcending those limits. Who, they're asking, are we really meant to be? What's the ultimate goal? This is a question that I feel like most churches and probably most Christians uh, have a hard time figuring out. You know, any given church, including this one, can ask, are we a place for people to mature all along their walk with Christ or a triage center for those who are struggling and just starting that walk? Are we about growing deeper or reaching out farther? Will we be a church that's about taking care of its own people really, really well toward maturity or one that's about sharing the saving news of Jesus with people who aren't part of any church yet. As I was studying the passage in Luke 8 that we're going to be looking at tonight, I was surprised to find an answer, and not just the question to one given church community's focus, but the answer to what every Christian's focus should be. That's a big claim, and so I'm going to need God's help to, uh, to try and guide us through it, so I'm going to pray, and I would invite any of you to silently join me in that. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for adopting us and giving us a purpose, um, giving us lives that mean something. Um, God, please show us how to live that out. Um, thank you for this family, both within this community and part of the larger church um, that we are part of. Um, Lord God, please guide us. Um, please help me to speak your word well tonight. Um, and please speak to every person here um, individually uh, as well as together. Please guide us. Um, we love you. Amen. So our passage tonight is Luke 8, 4 through 15, if you want to read along in your Bible, and the old NIV translation of the Greek will also be up on the wall. So verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. So, historical background, which you basically always need, right? Farmers in those days sowed seed by hand. They walked through the fields, which sometimes had not been plowed yet, uh, with a big sack full of seeds, and they just grabbed a handful of them and just threw them all over the place. Uh, some, of them see, some of the seeds made it, and some of them obviously didn't. Uh, this particular seed fell on hard-packed dirt that was walked on all the time, so it got kicked around and eventually eaten by birds who knew that on this particular path they wouldn't even have to dig for their dinner. Verse 6, some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. 
So in the Israel slash Palestine area, a lot of the soil was and still is pretty thin, uh, just barely covering this base layer of limestone rock. Uh, seeds that fell there didn't get eaten right away, and they were able to get into the dirt and sprout, but their roots weren't able to get down through the limestone to the life-giving water that was beneath it. Um, they could keep their sprouts alive under the hot Middle Eastern sun. Verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Are you starting to get the feeling that this field was not a very good one to be sowing in? Uh, we're 0-3 so far. So weeds in Palestine were very common. I mean, they're common everywhere. But in that region, they could grow to six feet tall, big gnarly weeds. And big weeds do what all weeds do. They compete for resources. The seeds that managed to sprout and set down good roots and get to the groundwater, they ended up choked out since weeds are just more aggressive when it comes to sucking up resources like water and soil nutrients. So this seed didn't make it either. Verse 8. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. Thank God somebody made it, right? Because if the wheat that ended up in good soil wasn't carrying the team with its hundredfold yield, then this would be the last year that anybody had seed to plant, and thus the last year that anybody would actually have bread. When Jesus said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, I think saying that was pretty necessary, because um, imagine you're one of the people who hiked all the way out from wherever in order to hear Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. And you're waiting all day, it's real hot out, you're waiting in suspense to hear the words of life, the hidden wisdom about the kingdom of God, made known by a prophet of the most high God that might even be the Messiah. And then, as you're waiting, he finally parts his lips, and the wisdom that tumbles out is a quaint little story about agriculture. That was sure worth it. How often does Jesus say something to us and we, in our take-it-at-face-value deafness, don't understand that it's life-changing? His disciples asked him what this parable meant, uh, because, as usual, his disciples are clueless, but they know when to ask questions, which is a pretty big part of wisdom, isn't it? And fortunately for them, and for us, Jesus is willing to give a full interpretation, which is honestly pretty rare for him, which he alludes to in verse 10. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So that quote had always confused me a little bit. Uh, it's from the prophet Isaiah, whose ministry foreshadowed that of Jesus. Um, and it's about people totally not getting it when God speaks to them, which seems weird to me, right? Doesn't, want God, doesn't God want people to get what he's saying, you know? Um, but the more I studied this, the more I became convinced that what Jesus is doing in issuing a parable like this is issuing a challenge, where he's basically saying, all right, so here's this difficult-to-understand parable. Are you willing to put in the hard work, both in your mind and in your heart, to push forward and find the meaning? Um, and that challenge still stands, both for this and for the rest of Jesus' teachings. Do we have ears to hear? Are we going to be people who read this or any of the other at-face-value, very weird things that Jesus says, and go, huh, that's odd, and then just go on with the rest of our lives as if nothing ever happened, just content at our current level of growth and our current level of stagnation, or are we going to be people who push, who go deeper? In verse 11, he says, This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God, the way, the truth, the life, the good news, or in Greek, the euangelion, which we'll get back to later. Good news that, just like a seed, is supposed to sprout and multiply beyond itself. 
Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So one of the points of using parables, just generally speaking, was to communicate truth in ways that people could reasonably be expected to understand. So the speaker would use familiar, recognizable symbols that were well known to the audience, and everybody in that region knew about farming. Uh, either you did it, which was likely agrarian society, or you saw it being done just about every day. Um, and back then, before you know, crossbreeding and genetic modification, seed was seed. And in this parable of Jesus, the seed, the word of God, it is the same. It's unchanging. The only thing that changes is the soil and how well it receives that word, that seed. I can imagine the disciples hearing this with a sort of holy fear, uh, the same kind they had when later at the Last Supper Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they all just looked around going, is it, is it I? Is it I, Lord? Here, they've got to be wondering, oh, am I the productive soil? Or do I have a soul full of rocks and weeds? Because if so, Lord, just cut the thorns and kick the stones and keep the birds at bay because I want to be the good soil, but I don't know if I'm good enough. What kind of soil am I? So, what type of soil are you? That's the churchy sort of question that we're expecting at this point, right? Because we, uh, we live in a, a consumer culture where we think everything is a menu. So here's this menu of options, and this preacher guy, Adam, is going to ask me to pick one. But there's only one right answer, so if I pick anything except the fourth soil, I'm a bad person. So thanks for that. The problem with asking just which soil are you is that I don't think that's actually the point of the parable. I don't think this is a personality test. I don't think this is the Myers-Briggs of dirt where you just are what you are in nice, neat categories with no overlap and never changing. I think that the surprise God hit me with as I prayed and studied this seriously for probably the first time is genuine, that this isn't a series of snapshot judgments. Are you one, two, three, or four? I think that it's a progression. It's a description and a roadmap of our walk with God. When you start a road trip and you've got your map or your directions, are you a failure for not already being at your destination? Of course not. This is a journey for every single one of us. Does where you are right now have meaning? Yeah, I think it does. But what matters most is that we are moving forward from wherever we are, pushing onward like the soil and the seed, pushing toward growth and everything that comes along with it. So let's check out this roadmap a little more, starting with soil number one. This poor dirt barely touched the seeds. The word got near it, but just kind of like bounced off, like paper off the back of a, of a trash can. And then the birds, nature's dumpster divers, come and uh, take what the soil wouldn't. So we said that parables use familiar, recognizable images, well-known to the audience, right? So how can we connect with this? What's familiar to us? Well, I know what it looked like for me when I was growing up as a cultural Christian. Um, so me back then, like my dad is a pastor. I'm growing up in buildings on church property. There are more Bibles than people in my house by a wide margin. 
Um, and I'm so surrounded by American Christian culture that I start believing that that's all the way of Jesus is. Like that the words of life are, now please join us in the fellowship hall and pass a casserole. Um, I was inoculated to it, like giving somebody a vaccine, a weakened version of something so that their system becomes hardened to the real thing. Hardened like the dirt along well-trodden paths, hardened enough that seed doesn't really begin to sprout. You've probably experienced this in some form, either more recently or farther back. Maybe you see soapbox preachers yelling hellfire and damnation at anyone whose eardrums are within firing range. Maybe it's uh, Christian-by-name pundits on cable TV shows just attacking their fellow hosts like Jesus would do. Um, Maybe it's just people who bear the name of Christ who have treated you really, really poorly. Or you go to school and you hear the professors and the students alike talking about Christianity as this sort of quaint little myth that we've all outgrown as a society. And you start getting hardened. So take uh, Brian H. Warner, better known as Marilyn Manson, the Antichrist superstar, right? Is the product of 10 years of legalistic Christian schooling. Did you know that? Talk about a successful vaccination against the gospel. In dramatic or subtle ways, it can happen to any of us, and it will, unless we let the Spirit of God till the soil in us, until we invite him to break up the hard parts in us, these calloused clods that prevent us from moving forward. And then there's soil, too. This is the kind of field that is a mile wide and an inch deep. Either you have been this person or you have known this person. Um, Odds are pretty good that at least at some level, maybe it's both. Um... We, you know, we, we have some mind-blowing spiritual experience or something, which is a redundant term, by the way, because your entire life is a spiritual experience. But anyway, you have this sort of mountaintop experience with God, and it, it just sets your soul on fire with it, and you're so psyched, it feels like your face is glowing, and it's maybe really freaking some people out, like it did when Moses came down from the mountain, and his face was doing the high beams and low beams thing. And so you're so excited that you're just... You're you're ready. You're ready to begin a life of constant prayer and thanksgiving. You're ready to sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. You're ready to to move to an intentional community like Jesus People USA and begin a life of reaching out to everybody in the power of Christ, telling everybody that you know about him. And you're so psyched that you stay up really late just basking in this. But you know tomorrow, tomorrow you're going to change the world for Jesus. And uh, then you wake up late. It's past the time you were supposed to go to work. You hustle, and you get to work, and you know, you can tell all of your coworkers about Jesus as soon as you get there, but you walk in the door, and your boss is just giving you this wilting sort of why-are-you-late glare, and he knows something's up, so you decide, okay, well, okay, I'll do it later. And before you know it, it's the end of the workday, and you have gotten nowhere with any of the other baristas who have now totally rethought inviting you to Jerry's birthday shindig, and you're not really feeling great about the way they're shooting you these, oh, so this is what a crazy person looks like, sort of stares, and maybe this being on fire for Jesus thing isn't for you after all. So we think. So some people are more dynamic in this than others. Uh, on the one hand, there's people like me. I'm pretty chill, so when I've gone through this stage, it's looked a lot more subtle, both the enthusiasm and the falling away. On the other hand, uh, I've got this friend who used to live next door to me. Uh, When I met him, he was super into Wicca. Dude was all about literal witchcraft. Um, He and I started talking about Jesus, and God won him over. And then he was super into Jesus. Uh, And then he moved to uh, somewhere in rural Colorado, 
and uh, then he was super into pop Buddhism. And then he moved back to his home state, and God got hold of him again, and then he was super into Jesus again. And I truly hope that this time it sticks. But it's only going to if he makes room for that at the deepest level in him, which is true of all of us. We're changing our lives in pursuit of Jesus only works when we, like the roots of sprouting seed, push. When we push deeper into the soil bed of our hearts and our minds, till we push down so deep that the word and way of Jesus replaces and becomes our foundation. Is there anything in your life right now that is more foundational to who you are than your desire for truth, for meaning, for the love of God to change your life and your world? Because if so, the space that his roots are looking for is already taken. It's like the American Indian parable I've heard from a classmate of mine at Metro, um, where an elder tells the boy in the tribe, well, there are these two dogs fighting within me, a good one and an evil one. And the boy asks the elder, well, which one wins? And the elder says, mm, the, one they f- the one that I feed the most. How much are we holding on to these unspoken and unseen things that define our essence, our, our desires, our expectations? And how deep are we willing to let the roots of the good news go, pushing everything else to a distant second place? For that matter, how much work are we willing to do to keep the ground clear of the weeds that might choke that out? The third kind of soil, Jesus said, receives the seed and even gives it room to lay down roots into that life-giving water beneath, but that soil also received weeds, which is a weird sentence, right? Because unless we're living in some sort of like 1960s B-horror movie, mud is not self-aware, but we are. And some things enter our life without our without our consent or our permission, and some things enter our lives when we invite them in. But either way, we have to ask the question of whether we'll remove the bad stuff to protect the good. You ever heard the term zero-sum? If, uh, if, if, if yes, then you've probably been around. Steve's grinning because he knows. This is one of my words. I love these words. Uh, other than being the title of a fantastic Nine Inch Nails track, um, it means some kind of system where if one thing increases, another has to decrease. Uh, think story problems in elementary school, right? If I have five apples and you take three, how many do I have? Well, I have three less because you took them. Um, money works this way, unfortunately. Uh, so does time, no matter how much I wish that was not the case. And uh, so does focus for the same reason. So. Show of hands, how many of you took a few years of a second language like Spanish or German or French in high school and barely speak any of it today? That, yep, that is what I expected. Uh, same here to some extent. Um, like almost everybody, if that's you, you've decided to focus on other things that you decided were more important, and they may have been. So your second language withered without the nourishment of time and focus that you decided to give to something else. Love, and I want to mean this very, very specifically in the sense of devotion to something, is a zero-sum too. Because how else can we understand Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And money is one of the things that Jesus calls a weed here in Luke 8 wealth and all the work and focus and energy and time that we put into getting money and then trying to protect it. And 
let's take a minute to remember that most of the world right now today lives on somewhere in the one to two and a half dollars a day range in US dollars. So if you have, um, if you have food, clothing, and even partial access to some kind of transportation, globally speaking, we are the 1% here. So let's not fool ourselves about that. Now, does the US have a grossly unequitable distribution of wealth, and should we do something about that? I think so. But most of you and I are crazy rich because we have enough to take care of our basic needs and then have a little left over for fun and comfort. And there's nothing inherently wrong about that. But how much is our comfort and entertainment getting in this zero sum of our time and energy? How much of my limited amount of focus am I pouring into maintaining my standard of living or financial security or just entertainment instead of following Jesus better, becoming more like him? So another weed Jesus names is worry. There's a popular one. Now, thanks to smartphones, we can carry around lists of all the things we have to worry about all the time, and they're always right there. Isn't progress great? We can waste unprecedented amounts of time freaking out about every little thing that we have to do or that might go wrong or freaking out about things we can't do anything about, which is most of the evening news, I think. And Jesus has a lot to say about worrying in Matthew 6, but since I am at least trying to say in Luke instead of going to the Sermon on the Mount, which is my jam, uh, suffice it to say, when we feed our time and mental energy to worrying, we are starving the word of God in us. The word that reminds us to trust God with all of our worries in such a way that our energy goes to cultivating a relational awareness of his presence and his goodness. Now that would be some time well spent. And finally, soil number four, we've arrived. It's done, question mark. As Jesus says in verse 15, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. What are crops for? It's to make food, right? To make pizza crust and matzo ball soup and whole wheat PB&J to make kids grow up big and strong. Uh, not all of it, though. Not all of the weed, because you've got to save some of it to replant the field for the next harvest, maybe even expand that field. So in some ways, using it for our growth is the most important part. In some ways, going out and sowing farther and wider is, since without that, that was, this will be the last year any of us get to see bread, and without that, where will growth be? So, you may be asking, uh, what's it going to be? Are you going to say that the church and the Christians should be about growth or about evangelism, about maturity as Christians or about the euangelion, the good news, reaching out to those who don't know Jesus yet and welcoming them in? But how can we ask that? As if reaching out to others doesn't make us grow? as if our growth doesn't lead to sharing the good news. Show me a fully mature field of wheat that is not producing seed to create more wheat, and I'll show you a field that is not fully mature. I mean, that's how we know a plant is grown, right? When it starts trying to reproduce, when it produces more of whatever seed or grain or fruit uh, it's supposed to in order to make more of itself. And how can we look at ourselves as Christians and discard that basic fact of what growth and maturity looks like? So many of us, and I have been one of them, have been seeing this as 
another zero-sum between growth and maturity on the one hand or, on the other hand, focusing on having wide open doors and an active desire to see people outside our walls begin this life-changing journey that so many of us here are on right now. This is not a zero-sum where living out one side takes away from the other. These are two sides of the same coin. And I believe this is how the church and every local church within it, how all of us are meant to be in Christ. Are there crops that we can produce that aren't strictly evangelism? Yes. Yes, there are. Loving each other really well, taking care of each other's basic needs, working for justice in the place that you live in the larger society, worship in all of its forms. But to produce only those other things and to neglect the Great Commission is like building a house with a fully stocked kitchen and a warm fireplace and nice thick walls and no door. It's wrong of us to keep something this good, this full of joy and meaning to ourselves. And it's equally wrong of us to focus so much on bringing new people in that uh, when those people say, all right, uh, I'm in, what's the next step? You tell them, I don't know, figure it out yourself. I've got more souls to save. Family, this balance and blending is what life in the body of Christ is like. True growth makes us want to reach out. And outreach makes us grow. So a woman named Leonore that a lot of you guys remember, used to work here, uh, said, Sometimes I get so concerned with producing fruit that I forget fruit has seeds, and the function of fruit is to nourish seeds. You ever think about that? Like Jesus' choice of metaphors is never accidental. The function of the quote-unquote fruit that we bear, the, the depth, the maturity, the strength, and the love, it isn't just there to feel awesome about ourselves and say, wow, God loves me more, or I'm more like him. Um, it's there for us to use in helping others begin and move along on the same journey. And I feel like sometimes when people are even willing to do either or both halves of this, there's still something standing in the way. And maybe it's an emotional roadblock. We just don't like it. it makes us feel uncomfortable, one or both sides. Maybe we just can't stand Christianese terms like discipleship and evangelism, uh, especially evangelism. I feel like my generation has uh, a lot of baggage around that word. Makes me uncomfortable. Um, personally, I believe we should take that word back. I think we should reclaim it. You know, make it a beautiful word again by using it in connection with loving actions. Um, give it a new meaning. Give it its original meaning. Maybe you're not willing to go that route. Fine. And call it something else, but for the love of God, please do it in some form. And that might be where the other roadblock comes in. Sometimes we just don't really know how, or are convinced that we don't really know how. I think this is one of those times when we were in a fight with American culture and we lost because we didn't know that it was a fight. What's the number one virtue in American culture right now? Tolerance! Don't interfere with anybody. Having influence over somebody's lives is very, very bad, and you should be ashamed about it. Um, it's like this is Star Trek when we're all under the prime directive. Do not interfere. It's a law. Um, but without, like, Jean-Luc Picard to make it actually fun. Uh, having influence in somebody else's life, well, that's an unforgivable sin right now in our culture. Um, you better not do that. Which is ridiculous, by the way, because A, you can't not influence, and B, if you don't influence anybody else, how is your life going to have meaning outside of itself? Um, but nonetheless, it feels uncomfortable sometimes. At the very least, it feels big. You know, too big for me. Um, 
sometimes we want to say, well, I'm not a professional, I'm not a called evangelist or anything. Leave that to somebody who knows what they're doing. So friends, uh, let me take this moment to remind you, no one knows what they're doing. At least not in that perfect, like, I got this on lock way that we tend to think about it. Um, Because if you've got working with people down to a formula, you are no longer working with people. You are now working with numbers on a spreadsheet. You are working with sprockets rolling down a factory belt. You have turned people into things. Thank God that we don't have it down to a science, and that we don't have it down perfectly, as if something that mechanical could ever be the best way to love and serve in the first place. But still, sometimes we feel untrained or unschooled, or we say, who am I to share the good news of Jesus with somebody else? Or, on the flip side of it, who am I to disciple somebody else, to build them up, to spur them onward, to learning more? And honestly, it's a lot less intimidating than our imagination can make it. Um, You want to build somebody up in the faith? Make a friend of somebody who has been following Jesus for one day less than you. One day. If you can find somebody that you are a month ahead of, great. A year ahead of, gosh, you practically are the quote-unquote professional you were just talking about. You know, and I'm not interested in setting up this sort of hierarchy of, oh, well, I've been in the kingdom of God for 562 days. How long have you? Ah, oh, well, I'm better. It's not about that. It's about recognizing that no matter how long you've been following Jesus, if it's been more than zero days, you have something to contribute. You can build other people up. You can encourage them, whether they have less or equal or maybe more experience following Jesus than you. He uses us that way. It's him, ultimately, not us. And you know what? Despite the fact that you haven't, I don't know, memorized the entire New Testament in Greek and taken seminary classes for 25 years and had a perfect GPA or some garbage like that, you know a few things about Jesus, okay? You do. If you've been following him for any length of time, you can tell people what he has done in your life. If you know anything at all about him, you can share that and you can catalyze other people's growth, building up your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you may not know this yet, but you want to. Because building people up in the presence of God, that feels good. And then the evangelism thing. Call it whatever you want. I truly don't care. It's still a part of God's design for every single day you walk outside your front door. You don't have to go buy a soapbox and a megaphone and get on that soapbox and yell at strangers to repent. Uh, Personally, I'd kind of prefer if you didn't. But that's not the only thing evangelism looks like. Um, How many of you guys remember Justin Filizola? I know, Jason, you just saw them, what, last week, was it? Yeah, I love that guy. Um, so, going to brag on him for a minute because he's not here to tell me not to. Uh, before he moved off to Jesus People USA in Chicago, uh, dude used to go to I don't even know how many hardcore and metal shows every year. Uh, and everybody in that scene knew Justin is into Jesus. And it's not because he went around just thumping people with Bibles, and it wasn't because he was obnoxiously quoting verses out of context at them. Please don't quote out of context. It was because he just found ways, anytime the conversation was anywhere near, matters of faith um, or what do you do in your spare time? Oh, I'm really involved with my church. Whatever it was, he would turn the conversation toward Jesus. Sometimes he started by talking about his church, which is a super easy conversation starter, by the way, when you go to a church with a name as weird as ours. 
Um, you ever tried that? Just drop the name Scum of the Earth Church in conversation with around your non-Christian friends and just see if it makes people ask what that's about. Ask in ways that can lead the conversation toward talking about Jesus. I dare you. Just try it. It's the easiest thing. We have it easier than most people. If you go to, you know, First Baptist so-and-so, like, it's not an easy, like, hack to get into the conversation. You have that. Use that. Or use your hobbies. Use your art. Um, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing my The Ghost Servant shirt, and that's Justin Filazola's band, his one-man chiptune, screamy, thrashy thing that he did that I love. Um, he had this project called The Ghost Servant, and the name and the lyrics were sort of crafted to uh, start conversations about God. The ghost Servant as in a servant of the Holy Ghost. It gets the conversation started. And it is crazy how much God can just fling people's curiosity wide open if you just start the conversation and just pray that the Holy Spirit keeps it going over time as you're in relationship with that person. Or just try being extra awesome to your physical neighbors, the people who live near you. Just go out of the way to be cool to them, get to know them, and just see if they don't become interested in who and what matters to you. Just try it. And man, this is, this is only the so-called final stage in the parable. Now, I spent a lot of time on that because it's awesome and it gets me excited, but there's more than one stage. Not everybody is consistently being soil number four. Um, sometimes I'm not, even these days. Sometimes worries and distractions just choke out my focus to the point that I'm not really producing anything in my life that matters in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter that you aren't perfect at this. Nobody is but Jesus, and that's always going to be true. What matters most, no matter where you are along this progression, is that you push. Push like a plowshare whose blade is heavy enough to part the hardened dirt of your heart, to pack down by letdowns to receive anything green and growing. Push like the roots of a fledgling sea, digging down with the strength of grass that can crack concrete, refusing to give up, pushing rock as dead as our shallowness out of the way until we taste the sweet water of life beneath it all, our perseverance rewarded with the ability to withstand any drought or trouble. Push like a diligent farmer's hand into the crumbled sand sucked dry by distractions to root out weeds of worry and want that will not divide us to death. Push like the skyward reach of grain grown tall enough to plant more fields full of friends we haven't met yet, tall enough to cast cool shade on its younger neighbors on searing hot days and help them grow. Brothers and sisters and friends who aren't part of the family of Jesus just yet, wherever you are on this journey that we are all on, keep pushing. Keep leaning into the next step of the incredible adventure that following Jesus actually can be no matter what weakened vaccine forms of Christianity you have ever seen before this. You won't always know how to do the next step perfectly, and that's okay. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you aren't supposed to know how to do this perfectly on your own, because why would God allow us that certainty, and in so doing, rob us of the opportunity and the gift of depending on each other, learning from each other, teaching each other, walking with each other, In Christ, we are all a part of the same wheat field. We are all branches remaining in the same vine. Cherish that. One way that we can celebrate that and reorient ourselves to that is through communion. 
in a minute. Uh, you can take part in something Christians do to reaffirm that we are united interdependently with Christ and with all of each other. Whether you're producing a crazy amount of crops right now, spiritually, or whether you're brand new at following Jesus, or whether you feel like you've kind of stalled out, no matter where you are, if you've decided to follow him, you are all welcome at the same table. When it's time, you'll come on up, tear off some of the bread or the gluten-free cracker bit, um, dip that in the juice. It is alcohol-free. If alcohol would be a problem for you, this is not. Um, Dip that and eat that in remembrance of what Christ has done in saving us and in joining us to him and each other. Another way we can do this together is through praying together. Um, As most of you know, that thing over there is called the prayer cave. Um, And me and some other people, um, some good folks are going to be back there to pray with you. If anything you've heard today at all, from me, from God, just stuff that's in your head right now, if any of that has struck a chord with you and you want to pray with somebody about going one step deeper into a life of growth, both deeper roots and farther reach, please come on back. Keep on pushing, friends. Amen.